0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser is spearheading a new museum in New Orleans focused on Louisiana civil rights history. Plus, we dig into all eight constitutional amendments that voters will weigh in on in this fall's elections. But first, with the gubernatorial primary just about two weeks away, we wanted to catch up with the Times-Picayune's New Orleans advocates, editorial director, and columnist Stephanie Grace. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So this is a very big weekend in the election season, the start of early voting. How is that affecting the main event, the race for governor?
1: Well, early voting has been getting more popular kind of as... Each year, really, in Louisiana, um, there's a period about two weeks before when people can show up and vote in person. At the, um, the last big election we had, which would be the um, congressional election in 2022, more than a quarter of the voters who ultimately participated voted early. So, you know, what, what ends up happening is you have kind of a an election day before an election day. So the candidates are almost making their last pitches now because they know a lot of people are gonna vote. They're not gonna wait until October 14th. Um, I should add, we also have mail balloting in this state, but it's somewhat limited to people who are older or you know they'll be out of town. It, other states have moved towards basically no excuses mail balloting, but Louisiana is not going there. We, we do early voting. Um, so you know what's really happened this week is that the topic is termed to electability. Um, there's Jeff Landry, who's been out there leading the polls. He's still leading the polls. As far as we know, uh, the attorney general, very conservative, you know, the kind of social conservative firebrand. He continues to skip debates. There are two this week. He's not participating in either one. And, um, you know, the other candidate who's polling kind of closest to him is Sean Wilson, who is the only lead Democrat in the race. Landry, of course, is a Republican, so what we've heard this week, interestingly, and, and last week, too, is that a couple of other candidates are kind of, you know, saying the quiet part out loud, almost um, they are, And they've done this in debates. Uh, Hunter Lundy, who is running as an independent attorney, Stephen Wagaspak, who's another Republican, more of a business Republican, you know, a former business lobbyist compared to Landry, who's kind of the social conservative, you know, and they've really kind of made pretty direct appeals saying look, if Sean Wilson, I like Sean Wilson, I respect him, um, but if he gets into the run-up with Jeff Landry, Jeff Landry is going to win. If you vote for me, I have a shot of beating Jeff Landry. So they're kind of making this direct appeal to people who look at Landry and feel like he is too extreme for the state. Now, of course, Sean Wilson has to answer that. Sean Wilson is the former um, transportation secretary for John Bell Edwards, of course, and he's African-American, and he has brought up the issue of race. He basically has suggested that people are saying um, he can't win because he's Black, and he's contesting that. He's saying, you know, there are folks who didn't believe we would elect a Black president. Um, Of course, you know, in addition to race, he also has the party challenge here, You know, there are certainly people who believe that the state isn't going to elect another Democrat in this era of kind of polarized voting that we're in. So, you know, it's a tricky argument to make for everyone, but they're all making it.
0: Well, what other races on this crowded ballot are catching your interest?
1: Well, you know, kind of somewhat unusually we have a number of open statewide seats um, because three incumbents, actually more than that, but but three incumbents are not running and there are crowded fields to replace them. Um, John Schroeder, the treasurer, is running for governor. Uh, Jeff Landry, the Attorney General, of course, running for governor. And Kyle Ardwin, the Secretary of State, has decided not to run for reelection. So there, are, those are crowded races. They're likely to be co- close. People should read up on the candidates. In the New Orleans area, we've got some kind of heavyweight battles at the parish level. In Jefferson, another unusual situation, there are two incumbent at-large candidates, and they're both being challenged by their own colleagues on the council, district members. Um, usually people wait for incumbents to be term-limited and to try to move up, you know, those district members to move up to at-large. But in this case, these district members are term-limited now, so they need a place to go if they want to stay in public office. So you have um, incumbent Scott Walker, who's being challenged by Dominic Ambistado, who's a district member from Kenner and you have incumbent Ricky Templet who's being challenged by Jennifer van Franken who's a district member from Metairie and then across the lake in Tammany there's another kind of heavyweight battle uh the in- the incumbent parish president Mike Cooper he of course knocked off a an incumbent when he got into office um Slidell Mayor Greg Cromer is challenging him. So he's a pretty prominent figure. Slidell's one of the major cities in Tammany and he was in the legislature. So that's going to be a tight one too.
0: Stephanie Grace, editorial director and columnist for the Times-Picayune, New Orleans Advocate, thanks for being here. Thank you. On Monday, Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser announced in a press conference the opening of the Louisiana Civil Rights Museum. This museum will highlight the fight for equal rights for racial minorities in the state, expanding upon Nungesser's work with the Louisiana Civil Rights Trail. Here to tell us more about this museum is the lieutenant governor himself, Billy Nungesser. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Great to be with you.
0: You've been working on the Louisiana Civil Rights Trail for a while now. So when did you decide that this history really needed to be compiled into a museum in New Orleans? What was the inspiration behind that?
2: Well, when I first got elected, I went to a tourism conference in Arizona. And Alabama got up and bragged about the tens of thousands of people that visit their Civil Rights Trail. And then Mississippi got up and talked about all the sites they have. So I leaned over to Doug, who's the head of tourism, and I said, do we have a civil rights trail? He said, I don't think so. And I said, why not? He said, I don't know. So when I had a chance to speak, I said, look, I don't think we have a civil rights trail. I'm going to go home and find out why not. So we assembled a team and we worked with the history departments at Grambling and Southern to do the research. And we quickly found that a lot of the things that Mississippi and Alabama brag about started right here in Louisiana. (laughs) A.Z. Young from Bogalusa to Baton Rouge, the longest march, and that inspired the, the march in Alabama. Dr. Jones, 17 days out of law school, filed a lawsuit that blacks didn't have to ride in the back of the bus. We were able to honor him, and to see him look at his name on that plaque and start to cry, to finally be recognized is a moment I'll never forget. But that inspired the bus boycott in Alabama. And then, you know, uh Leona Tate, to hear her tell the story that uh she saw police on horseback. And she asked her mama, why do I have to go to school when there's a parade? She said, Oh no, honey, this ain't no parade. Keep your head down. But to capture those stories from those incredible heroes and brave men and women of that era, um, just needed to be done.
0: Yeah, you're so right. It wasn't until I moved to Louisiana that I learned that the Montgomery bus boycott was not the first one. It actually was modeled off of the Baton Rouge bus boycott. And Martin Luther King had gone there to study it and to learn how to incorporate that sort of nonviolent protest in Montgomery. Well, I know that the museum started with an inaugural experience with an exhibition at the Ernest and Morial Convention Center Tell us about that first exhibit. What's inside?
2: Well, that museum is going to be housed there in the the front, uh, a room off of the lobby. So everyone that visits the convention center will be able to see it. And then also everyone will will go there to visit the museum. And there is going to be a cube in there. You'll be able to walk in with 10 of your friends. And if you look to the left, you can talk to A.Z. Young about that march. You'll be in the march with him. If you look to the right, you'll be talking to uh, uh, Rosa Parks about her being led in the school. Um, it is a wow factor, which is important to have, along with all the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and um, And we're still going to continue to work on the trail, bringing more stories, heroes and occurrences to the museum. And um, And it's, it's something to see. So we're going to open it on October the 8th. Uh, That day after church at 2 o'clock, it'll be open free for a week for everyone to enjoy. And uh, it's going to be something that we can all be proud of.
0: I also want to talk about some of the more specific movements that are discussed in the museum. You know, many people know the story of Ruby Bridges, the young black girl who integrated a public school in New Orleans. But a lot of people don't know about other movements like the Bogalusa to Baton Rouge March what can you tell us about that story and how it's captured in the museum?
2: Well, uh, you know, you'll be on the, you'll be in the march with them and they'll be talking about that 105 mile march in the dead of summer. Um, and, you know, we actually have a marker at the Hicks' home where they met and planned that march. And then we have a marker right there on the state capitol grounds. Um, took a lot of uh, work to get approved to put that on the capitol grounds. But we have a marker right there by Az Young Park, where that march ended. So um, we tell the whole story. We interview people along the way, people that lived it. We we also have interviewed relatives of those that remember it. Started with meetings at the Hicks home, right there in Bogalusa, where we put a marker, and we were able to visit with her family, and uh, with the family of the Hicks family, and then it ended where there's a park next to the Pentagon barracks on the Capitol grounds uh, where they gathered to speak about equal rights. So um, um, if you see the footage of the march and see the women, children, young people, black and white, marching side by side, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible
0: amazing we are speaking with lieutenant governor billy nungesser about the new louisiana civil rights museum in new orleans i know that the beloved new orleans restaurant slash institution really dookie chase is even highlighted here so what can you tell us about how that restaurant played a role in new orleans civil rights history
2: yeah um you know the family incredible family uh, the first marker went up in front of that great restaurant and they would allow, uh, blacks and whites were not allowed to meet together. So they would go up to a private room and uh, they would bring them some good good food uh, while they met and talked about the, the civil rights movement. So a lot of what happened here in Louisiana was planned upstairs at that restaurant. And, and to think they were taken some kind of risk by hosting those meetings upstairs in that restaurant uh, is pretty incredible. And uh, so uh, the, it's great, you know, there's some footage in here where Ms. Morell was speaking about those meetings. And so uh, that's what really makes this special is we've been able to capture these stories from the people that lived it. And we're still working hard to continue to catch more stories because there's many more stories to tell. To hear the families of the 17 law school, the 17 Southern students that sat in in that diner in Baton Rouge, they got expelled from school. Um, I can't imagine being a young college kid and 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 protesting and sitting in when you knew it was going to cost you possibly your future education. So, um, telling those stories while these some are not with us anymore but while many of their family members are still here, to see them, how proud they are, that their family member is being honored finally.
0: Billy Nungesser, Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana, he's been discussing the state's new Civil Rights Museum. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. While the election for Louisiana's governor is heating up, the head of state is not the only thing residents will be voting on this fall. There are eight constitutional amendments on the ballot, four of which will be weighed in on on October 14th, with the last four reserved for November 18th. Recently, the Public Affairs Research Council of Louisiana released a guide to the 2023 constitutional amendments. Today, PAR President Stephen Procopio joins us to break it all down. Thanks for being here.
3: No, absolutely.
0: Well, let's just start with the first amendment on the ballot. What is a proposal?
3: Sure. Uh, two of them really have to do with uh, uh, COVID or the fallout from some of the actions that happened at COVID. Uh, the first uh, amendment on the October ballot. It uh, deals with donations to conduct elections. Uh, during the uh, twenty uh, twenty election, there was a lot of concern over COVID, uh, and would there be enough ability to deal with um, uh, the election? Because there was, you know, just there was different times. So then, a lot of nonprofits, particularly Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, made a lot of uh, uh, donations to start help with this. It became sort of known as Zuckerbucks. Um, and then there's been a lot of sort of reaction. Uh, in a sense that that maybe had undue influence, and so states are starting to ban this. Um, it's unclear in Louisiana whether that is legal. Uh, initially, the secretary of state thought it would be allowable, but then changed his mind. Uh, since then, uh, two attempts have been to make this um, illegal. Uh, however, uh, those were vetoed. So then, this is a constitutional amendment to put in the um, uh, in the constitution that foreign governments or nonprofits can't make donations uh, to help with administering elections
0: well what I'm, what I'm wondering about that first one though is you know you said it comes out of covid but it also comes out of this this era of a lot more suspicion around elections and election workers so do you at all see this as a sort of partisan attempt at all or is this playing into these suspicions or is it just saying hey covid's you know wrapping up uh we no longer really need this
3: well no, I think it comes out of the controversy uh, of and uh, of the sort of elections that happen. it's the same all the same thing kind of put together. Uh, now it's slightly different than saying the election was stolen and, and that type of discussion. Uh, but mostly, I try not to get too much into the motivations of why people would do something politically. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's not a hard jump to say this is mostly something being pursued by uh, uh, conservative members of the legislature.
0: And can you just walk us through the next three amendments?
3: Uh, So the the Second Amendment on the ballot provides for protection for worship in churches. Again, this comes out of uh, uh, COVID, uh, particularly here in Baton Rouge. uh, There was a pastor um, that disagreed with the COVID restrictions that happened for businesses and for uh, places of worship. And so he violated them. Uh, His case went all the way to the Supreme Court. They ultimately ruled um, that that violated the Constitution. But there was a lot of disagreement over um, whether or not the, the rules that apply to uh, the First Amendment and freedom of religion should apply specifically to your ability to worship in a church. This amendment would spell it out and said, look, not only are you have a freedom of religion, but you have the freedom to worship in a church. And so this would add this to the Louisiana Constitution, uh, in addition to just the freedom to worship. Uh, otherwise, you would stay uh, as it is now. Um, the Third Amendment is is relatively simple, uh, every occasionally the state has surplus dollars that they brought in more revenue that they, than they spent. Uh, a certain portion of that 10% right now has to be spent on paying down the state's retirement debt. This would change it to 25%, but also would extend it out for, uh, you know, whenever we have retirement debt, as opposed to the current um, uh, regime that says it's, it would essentially end in 2029, uh, when sort of a, a small segment of the retirement debt goes away. So that would create um, pay down retirement debt quicker, which would save more money for teachers and other things like that. However, it would reduce the options of spending on uh, surplus debt for things like construction projects. The last amendment uh, for the November, uh, for the October ballot are, deals with property uh, tax exemptions for nonprofit organizations. Uh, nonprofits in general have a very broad exemption uh, for their property taxes, um, This would restrict it so that if you have a property tax exemption and you are using that to provide housing, that if you have more than three violations of the housing code on very specific uh, high level violations, um, then the uh, authority, the governing authority, like a parish council uh, can then suspend your, um, uh, suspend your exemption. And the idea is there to try and sort of use another tool in the toolbox to try and fight blight um, versus and, you know, other people on the other side would say this, this isn't, isn't going to help. Uh, and you're just taking away money from people they actually could use to fix up the place.
0: We are speaking with Stephen Procopio, president of the Public Affairs Research Council of Louisiana, about the constitutional amendments on the Louisiana ballots this fall. Of course, as we mentioned, there will be four amendments proposed in October, another four in November. Let's dive into November 18th. What will voters be considering there? Just start by telling us about the first two.
3: The first one. It, there's some technical ones in here. It really changes the, the deadlines for veto bills and particularly what happens for veto sessions. Uh, up until really this the last four years, uh, there were no veto sessions, period. Um, vetoes were occasionally voted on if they happened to come back up during a, a, a session. Uh, but otherwise, the legislature always voted to cancel a veto session. But since we actually had one, um, we can start to see, look, there might be some technical issues And particularly what happens is that if you have a veto session, uh, if you look at the constitutional timing of it, ends up in the middle of another session. Do you have to suspend that session, adjourn that session? Can you just vote on it during the session? And no one was really sure. um, Sort of people made a decision. But this essentially clears that up and says, if a veto session would occur when another session is going on, they can just deal with the veto override votes during whatever session is going on. And there's a little more technical stuff going on than that, but that's, that's the primary thing that this does. The second amendment uh, on the uh, November ballot uh, deals with um, six inactive funds. These are funds that either never have been used uh, or like one fund, I think, has $600 left in it. So it's really kind of a cleanup uh, amendment. That sort of removes funds that um, don't need to be in there. No one's using them. And they have, you know, interesting names like the Chafalaya Basin Conservation Fund. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean this actually helps the Chafalaya Basin. It's just a fund that someone created that never got used.
0: Got it. Well, what about the next two? What are the last amendments that voters will be considering?
3: So uh, number three is another property tax one. Um, it, basically, anything dealing with property tax has to be dealt with through a constitutional amendment in, in Louisiana. It's the way our constitution is set up. Uh, this would actually give an additional property tax exemption for first responders. Uh, so everyone that owns a home gets a $75,000 homestead exemption. Um, this would, at the uh, if the local governing authority agrees, so this is a, a local option, essentially, they could give an additional $25,000 on top of the $75,000 uh, to emergency responders. And so they were talking about police, firefighters, and certain others like EMS, EMS. Um, and so that's uh, you know fairly straightforward in what it, uh, what it would do. The last one uh, is unfortunately also kind of complicated. Uh, it's rule changes for the revenue stabilization fund. This is another constitutional fund. There is already what's known as the budget stabilization fund. Uh, that is what most commonly is known as the rainy day fund. Um, this is sits sort of alongside it as the revenue stabilization fund. Um, there's about two point two billion dollars in that fund. But it also has a clause that says with a two-thirds vote, the legislature can tap it for an emergency, but they never say what the emergency is. So the concern is that this could use as a slush fund. They could essentially use it for anything. Uh, This would remove that ability, but it would let them tap it during a budget deficit. So they could use up to $250 million if uh, there's still an emergency once you tap the, the rainy day fund.
0: I find the third one really interesting there, a provision to provide tax exemptions for the state's first responders. We've been seeing a lot more support for first responders ever since the onset of the pandemic. And even now, as firefighters are working to put out fires in western Louisiana. So how did this amendment get on the ballot and why now?
3: I I really couldn't speak to the why now. I mean, I think there's a general uh, concern, particularly for a shortage and first responders, whether they're firefighters or police officers, law enforcement in general, just sort of a workforce shortage everywhere, whether it's healthcare care uh, or uh, teachers, but also in emergency responders. So I think it's an attempt to kind of deal with that. Um in in, in terms of, um, I think the other side kind of says, well, we'll just give people a pay raise instead of sort of creating a tax exemption and, and that's sort of messing up the tax code. Uh, and then, you know, the proponents say, well, we can do both. Uh, So, you know, there's arguments on both sides of this one.
0: Stephen Procopio, president of the Public Affairs Research Council of Louisiana. Thanks for being here.
3: Oh, no, no. I love, love uh, coming on and talking to y'all.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, The Times-Picayune, New Orleans advocates, editorial director and columnist Stephanie Grace, Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser, and the president of the Public Affairs Research Council of Louisiana, Stephen Procopio. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Major support
0: for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.